Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. An accomplished lawyer and a highly readable film critic at her own site, MovieMom.com, and at RogerEbert.com, where she's also an editor. I am so pleased to welcome back the friendly and wise Nell Minow, author of over 3,000 reviews since the 1990s. Nell has also written a handful of terrific film books, including 101 Must-See Movie Moments, and it's one I highly recommend and also is the first in a series. Nell, it is so great to have you here today. How are you doing and how was your summer? Summer, Well, the summer was great. Uh, and uh, I'm kind of sorry to see it go. It's my favorite season of the year. Um, and last month, I, we had two wonderful things happen. Our daughter got married. She's the Hollywood costume designer. So you can imagine there were some oh, many beautiful wow. gowns uh, over the course of the weekend. And, uh, and our son's book was published the same week. Uh, he's written a book about Metallica. So Oh, congratulations. It was our first chance to be together since the pandemic. So it was a lot to celebrate. Oh, that's wonderful. I remember seeing the announcement and I think one photo and it was beautiful of your daughter's wedding. I didn't know about the Metallica book. I think was Sheila. Did she like write a little something? She was quoted, she was quoted in it, which oh, I didn't know great. until after it was published. And I wrote to tell her that. Yeah, that she perfect. reviewed one of the Metallica movies and I got such a kick out of seeing her included. Oh, I love that so much. Well, congratulations. That's all wonderful news. And your, uh, your kids are doing great. Your husband is good. Yeah, my husband is wonderful. Oh, perfect. Well, when we spoke about you coming back and tried to think of a good theme to tackle, you came up with a great one right away, based on a piece that you wrote for Roger Ebert in March called 19 Films That Celebrate the Art of Female Friendship, which I really loved. Before we get into the movies we selected today, why don't you tell us more about this article and some of the discoveries you made? It was something that I really wanted to write about it. You know, we have Women Writers Week every year. And in the past, I've done profiles of people like Nora Ephron and Barbara Stanwyck. And I wanted to do something different. You know, I, I have the usual reluctance for listicles. But on the other hand, I do like the idea of bringing to the attention of our readers films that they might have overlooked. And even if they know the film, uh, you know, ideas that they might have overlooked. And one of the ideas that I really wanted to focus on is that in just about every movie with a female lead character, there's kind of the smart alecky best friend that they get to talk to, whether you're talking about, you know, the animal best friends in Disney animated mm-hmm. films or the real life best friends, usually played by Judy Greer or in old movies, Eve Arden. And I didn't want to write about that. I wanted to write specifically about the movies where the women were on an equal basis and primarily where the friendship was the subject of the movie. And there are some that are really very dear to my heart. I don't think that Boys on the Side is the greatest movie in the world, but I do love the I love it of the friendships. And it's also got one of my favorite soundtracks. Right, right. over there. I have yeah, it still. It all yeah. the time. 
So I, I, I really love that. And then just, you know, this is, was not in my list because I hadn't seen it yet when I wrote that. But this summer, a movie that's out on DVD this week, uh, Spirit Untamed, really is about the friendships of the young girls. You know, it's just the girl and the horse movie, but it's really about the friendships. And I think that is, you know, the way that women rely on each other and confide in each other is not explored often enough in movies. And when it is, it's really interesting. So uh, I I did do some research. And uh, of course, after I wrote it, I thought of like five more movies that I could have included. But, uh, you know, movies like Booksmart was a, was a great one. And I love that because I have to tell you, as much as I love the characters in that movie, I'm pretty sure that when they go to college, their friendship is going to diminish a lot. They really didn't have a ton in common. And and I love the way the movie kind of signaled that and that that was okay, you know? Yeah, people move through your life and you're lucky to have them when you have them because everyone is a gift and relationships are wonderful. But yeah, it really did. Kind of like Lady Bird showed sort of the end of a or the possible end of a relationship. The same actress. Yeah, right. Yes. Exactly. I yeah, know, the same for Beanie yeah. Feldstein. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I so I, lo- I like that one a lot. Um, I had forgotten about the Thelma Todd Zezu Pitts uh, series, uh, which, you know, we always talk about Laurel and Hardy, but those were, you know, had wonderful physical comedy and a brashness to them that I enjoyed. So, yeah, I really enjoyed looking back and seeing that in the context of the three films we're going to talk about today, we've got a comedy, we've got a drama, and we've got kind of a, a thriller. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you can work through these issues in any context and and have it be illuminating. But still, in all of those, it's really about the way these women support each other. Yeah, perfectly. And you hit the nail on the head. I love lists, but I'm really like terrible at making them because I always think of things I want to add. And so you made a really good point. Like these are movies that maybe people haven't thought about in years. It made me want to revisit a bunch. It's like, oh yeah, that was great. I should rewatch that again. And also uh, when I was reading your short analysis of each movie, sometimes you would reference other films that they were in or other actresses who were doing something similar. And I thought it was really clever. Yeah. Well, thank you. I want to mention just a couple of points that are in the article that that uh, I really enjoyed thinking about. One is that, of course, Imitation of Life has been made twice, and we are most yes. familiar with the Lana Turner version, and uh, you know, which is a classic, and mm-hmm. with the make greatest movie funeral of all times. Oh gosh, but, <laughs> yeah. I, but I really wanted to talk about the 1934 version because the black and white female characters had a much more egalitarian friendship in that one. It really says a lot about where we were as a society in 1934 during the depression and, you know, during tough economic times, there's always a lot more equality because everybody has to pitch in together. We don't have the luxury of uh, putting people in different categories. So I wanted to mention the, the 1934 version with Claudette Colbert and Louise Beavers as a much better description of a friendship yeah. than, the, than, the, than the 1959 version where they're kind of friends, but one of them is the housekeeper of the other one. And I wanted to mention also in Stage Door and in The Women, you had a lot of the cattiness that we often see in movies and undermining that we see in movies about women friends, but you also had a lot of support uh, as well. 
And I, my, one of my favorite examples is Tender Comrade. Oh, yes, Tender Comrade, the war movie. <laughs> it's a war movie. It was a huge hit during World War II. And it was about these women who all band together because their men are fighting and it's tremendously patriotic. And they band together so that they, they set up almost like a little commune where somebody watches the children so the other ones can go to work and be Rosie the Riveter and they support each other when they get bad news and it's wonderful. And it's called Tender Comrade and it was very popular. It was considered a major piece of propaganda to support the war effort. And then same movie, nothing was changed in the movie, but a few years later during the Red Scare and Blacklist era, it was retconned as communist propaganda because the women lived together and took care of each other. And somebody said, oh my gosh, that's so communist. And it has the word comrade in the title. And uh, comrade, the, the term tender comrade came from a Kipling poem. It was not because of the Russians calling each other comrade. I mean, it just shows you that even the same movie can be seen differently at different times. Um, and then it's interesting, I want to mention nine to five because they're doing a remake of that now or remake slash update of that now. Oh, are and, they? They always yeah. talk about doing one and I never know. But it's I think on. they are. Okay. And it's very um, timely, you know, in the yeah. era of too, it's very, very timely. But yeah, I just, you know, I really enjoyed because I kept thinking of more and more and more and more very well-known, very successful, popular movies like Bend It Like Beckham, but also smaller movies like For a Good Time Call, which I just think is such an adorable movie. Yeah. And you brought up another really good point talking about imitation of life. When I read that section, I thought, oh, my goodness, I know I saw that one, but it's been so many years that I do want to check it out. It reminded me, speaking of Sheila again, over the summer, we did a pre-code episode and uh-huh. one of the movies was on Babyface. Um, yeah. Yes, and, that is the yeah. pre-code movie. Yes. And it's um it's Barbara Stanwyck and her best friend in the movie is Teresa Harris. So it's a white woman and a black woman together. Yeah. And they're like best friends on equal footing. And um, she's willing to like, well, if you're not going to take her, you're not taking me. And this was the 1930s. So it's really kind of cool to go back and look. I think there's that prejudice about old movies as being so outdated and Sometimes they were, of course, and you know, there's a different context for everything, but sometimes they'll surprise you. Yeah. And as as you well know, uh 1930s was the era where we had these wonderful Barbara Stanwyck, Catherine Hepburn characters who were independent, who had yes. jobs, and then in the 1950s that all disappeared. And yeah. an example of that is in my favorite wife. Uh, the original version with Irene Dunn, she's lost at sea because she's working on some kind of a project. That's right, she was. In the remake with Doris Day, she's a housewife and a, basically a ditz, you know, and yeah, she doesn't, she doesn't have any kind of independent agency whatsoever except for surviving on the island with was it move over darling was that the one okay yeah Yeah. no i know yeah very good point altogether well one important distinction that you you touched on and you made in the piece is the vital difference between true friends and a main character and her sidekick so i'd love to know more about that and also if there were any other things you noticed that you haven't mentioned yet that you would like to share Well, one point about the sidekick that I always think of is I was talking to somebody from Disney once and I said, 
do you always have to have some cute little animal sidekick for every heroine in all these movies? Yeah. And he said, <laughs> he said, I was determined I was not going to do that because we always do that. And I wanted to do something different. And then I ran into two big problems immediately. One, if the heroine is going to be isolated, which she always is in some way at the beginning of the movie, I think we were at that time talking about Rapunzel, who is literally isolated. Yes, true. Um, not, not just, you know, left in the fireplace like Cinderella, but I mean, she's really isolated. He said she can either talk to herself or she can talk to some other creature. <laughs> and he said, you know, she's going to sound nuts if she's talking to herself all the time. She has to have somebody to talk to. Otherwise, you're going to have to have a narrator or something doing all the exposition. So so he said, so as just as a narrative choice, you have to give her somebody to talk to. Yeah. And then he said, and to be honest, uh, we make a lot of money selling stuffed animals of all these creatures and the marketing people are going to get very upset if you come to them and say, well, we're deciding not to have one this time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's fine. I mean, I'm, you know, marketing is, is a whole big issue, but if a child sees a movie like Rapunzel and wants to have someone to confide in, and it turns out to be a stuffed animal, I certainly had many conversations with my Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy when I was growing up. Me too. So, yeah. Yes. So, and so I, I totally get that. So, so I understand the role of the sidekick. The other thing a sidekick can do is it tells you something about the main character. And again, we see this evolution from an era where the sidekick was very similar in race and class. Uh, the Eve Arden, you know, wisecracking character. She gets to add the comic relief. So our, our, our main character can just be, you know, beautiful and wonderful and not have to be a smart aleck. Um, but over like in the 60s, 70s and 80s, we saw an evolution where there was a black best friend. And that showed us that our character was a wonderful person who was not yeah. prejudiced <laughs> and uh, a gay best friend. There was a whole era of gay oh, best the 90s. Friend. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> 90s was all about the gay best friend. And, um, you know, for example, in Frankie and Johnny, there is no best friend in the play. But oh, they really? had to add Nathan Lane as the best friend, as the gay best friend. You know, so again, that shows us that our care, our main character is a warm hearted person who has, you know, diverse friends. And that's really great. And so they add uh, they add a little bit of spice. They add a little bit of insight about the character and a little bit of comic relief. But it, that's all very, very subordinate. They never really have their own role. I'm thinking about 13 going on 30. The best friend turns into the, the villain, basically. I know. Yeah, that was that was so sad. <laughs> yeah. was very sad. But Judy Gear uh, does you know does a wonderful job as she oh, played yes. a million best friends. She's she's the sort of the as I said, she's the Eve Arden of today. She really is. Yeah. I mean, on the men's side, back in the 50s, we had like Tony Randall or the 60s and Jack Carson or whoever and Eve Arden. But yeah, and, Judy. Know, even, even somebody who is a star, Van Johnson played the best friend a couple of times. He did. He played the best friend in Brigadoon. He played the best friend of Henry Fonda and Yours, Mine and Ours. So yeah, but, you know, best friend roles are fine. But it's really not about the friendship. They are there to be kind of the the Greek chorus, the cheering section, the comic relief, and 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 they they generally do not have a story arc of their own. 
No, they're kind of the foil. Exactly. Well, you mentioned the Bechtel test a few times, and I wondered what your attitude about that rule and to explain to people listening. It came from the cartoonist Alison Bechtel's 1985 comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, in an entry called, aptly enough, The Rule, which stipulates or asks if a film has A, at least two named women in it, who B, speak to each other about C, something other than a man. I'm kind of mixed on it myself. I think it's a good rule of thumb to keep in mind and will hopefully make screenwriters and storytellers take a look at this in their work. But I think there is something to be said for for context, exactly what we were talking about. Like, what if the women are cops trying to catch a male serial killer? So, of course, they're talking about a man (laughs) the whole time. Or what if their one conversation about something other than men in like a sexist rom-com is just, hey, I love your shoes. Oh, thanks. So I have a lot of questions, but I think it's a good thing to keep in mind overall. So how about you? Well, as you said, I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to teach you a legal term that's really useful in real life, which a lot of terms are not. Okay, and that legal term is rebuttable presumption. And what that means is it's a starting point. It's not the definitive, but it's a starting point. And we start with that and we say, does this film pass the Bechdel test? And we take a movie like Gravity, which does not. And we say, but. is that a problem in that movie? No, it is not a problem in that movie. But it's so it's again, you know, it means that you start out like 60 percent. That seems to be a problem, but it can be rebutted by saying she's the only character in the movie. So, of yeah. course, yeah, she needed a cute little animal sidekick. But other than that, you know, it's you know, she's really going to be talking to herself. So so I think the Bechdel test is is more important for filmmakers than for critics. I think that that is yeah. something that is should be on the checklist that every uh, director and producer have um, because uh, I was um, talking to uh, David Oyelowo. Uh, oh, a wonderful actor. A wonderful actor who directed his first film, which I thought was excellent this year called The Waterman. And um, I asked him about Maria Bello, who was in the film. And he said that he was talking with Maria Bello and mentioned that he was going to be directing a film. And she said, I will do any role in the film. And he said, well, um, really, the only role uh, that might be appropriate for you would be the, the mother. But that's already been cast with Rosario Dawson. And then he said, wait a minute, we've got a policeman in the movie. Why shouldn't it be Maria Bello? Yeah. That's, that's the question that you want people to ask. Oh, Why that not? is perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. So that's, that's one where if he had, if Maria Bello had not approached him, but if he just said, how are we doing on the Bechdel test? He might've then said, you know, there's no reason that this policeman has to be a man. Mm-hmm. The police officer can be any race or any gender. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I, I think it's it's a very useful um, idea, but we can't get too bogged down in it. No, I agree. And I always think it's interesting when they could swap out gender in a movie. Um, like, obviously, Alien is the most famous example of that with Sigourney Weaver. Um, but also in a movie like David Fincher's The Game, which I think Jodie Foster was going to play the sibling of the Sean wow. Penn character. And they just cycled in Sean Penn when she was unavailable. Um, So I thought that, you know, it's really interesting. It's like if you write a really dynamic role, 
think about a man or a woman does it work so you're raising really good points and teaching me some legal stuff I love this yeah I you know one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time is in that category and I love the play the front page it was a great play it was a great movie and then it went from being an 8 to a 10 or 11 or 12 when they decided to make the main character not just female but the ex-wife yeah, uh, of the, yeah, of the editor. And um, that just that made it into one of the greatest movies of all time because it just added so much to the dynamic between the, the reporter and the editor and so much more. The stakes were so much higher and more intense. Now, they also added, you know, Cary Grant, Russell Russell, you know, an all star cast. It was a fantastic movie. And, and of course, Howard Hawks did a wonderful job directing yeah. it. But that key switch, which was not thought of by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur when they wrote the play based on their own experiences in the news business, um, you know, really was the vodka and the orange juice. Yep. Perfect together. Exactly. Well, I know we'll be talking about all of these things and more when we get into the movies. You came up with such an amazing list of films citing uh, movies from the early 1930s, as we mentioned, up through titles released very recently. And while I'm sure we'll reference several of those as we go, you chose a really cool eclectic range of films for us to discuss today, including How to Marry a Millionaire from 1953, 1989, Steel Magnolias, and set it off, which was released in 1996. Likely getting into some spoilery territory here and there. If you haven't seen the movies, you should probably proceed with caution. But kicking things off, we have director Gene Negolesco's How to Marry a Millionaire, which was released in that great era where trios were a big trend in Hollywood, boys and girls. All threes was, were very popular. And once again, we focus on groups of three women trying to make it in the big city or in a changing, increasingly modern society. Based on the 1930s Zoe Aikens play, The Greeks Had a Word for It, and Loco from playwrights Dan Dale, Yunsen, and Catherine Elbert, this 1953 romantic comedy centers on three models played by Betty Grable, Marilyn Monroe, and Lauren Bacall, who band together and rent a penthouse in New York, which was owned by someone who fled the country after owing money to the IRS, selling off the furniture, starting with the piano for $2,500 to live and dine off of. They team up in the hopes of catching at least one, if not three, millionaires they can marry. A silly and yes, outdated premise. Nonetheless, it's a very fun film where the women have almost better chemistry scheming and supporting one another than they do with the leading men, but the leading men are great as well. So what are your thoughts on this one? Well, I think you described it perfectly. It's also one of the movies where I feel most strongly of all movies I've ever seen, the main character marries the wrong person. I think Lauren Bacall would have been much better off with William Powell. No kidding. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm like, she just married this guy. She barely kind of knows. Like, no. (laughs) I, I, and there's no chemistry, in my no, opinion. No, not at all. So that that does bother me about the movie. Also, the David Wayne character doesn't make any sense at all. No. I mean, the whole the whole deal. Nevertheless, it is an adorable movie because these three women are so great. 
Now, in the very beginning, when uh, Marilyn Monroe, who was still quite new and uh, in fact received a Best Newcomer Award for this film, uh, and Lauren Bacall, of course, very established uh, actress, um, they're in the apartment and Lauren Bacall has not yet met the Betty Grable character. And Marilyn Monroe has her prove herself by basically finagling a bunch of food out of somebody just by smiling at him and being, yeah. you know, <laughs> and so we know what kind of a, what kind of a world we're in. We're in a world where these women feel that just to put it in the context that we might look at it now, that given the limitations that they are under in a very repressive society, uh, this is their way of kind of leveling that playing field. And Lauren Bacall is divorced. The other two have never been married. Lauren Bacall is divorced and cynical. And so mm -hmm. she has decided that what she cares about is she just wants to marry somebody wealthy. And that's really all she wants to do. And she brings these other two girls along with her. And they have various uh, adventures along the way. And it would not be a romantic comedy if they didn't all learn that love is more important than money. Yes. And it wouldn't be a happily ever after if one of them didn't actually become wealthy anyway. So uh, it is a delightful movie. It has that staple of movies of that era of a fashion show. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta have, have that. Yeah. Gotta have that. And um, and it's in uh Cinerama, right? It's in Cinemascope. So uh so you you know you're lucky if you can watch it on uh, letterbox so that you can really see the whole thing. But yeah, I think it is a tremendously fun movie, and it is really about the core relationship between the three of them. They really support one another. And you know, Betty Grable in the movie is not too bright. She when, when she gets invited by Fred Clark to his lodge, she thinks that means like the Elks or something. Yes. Like it's going to be a bunch of options for her. her yeah. for a three weekend. And, um, and, uh, and Marilyn Monroe, of course, uh, is, has, uh, is afraid to wear her glasses and gets into all kinds of trouble because she basically can't see anything that she's doing, gets on the wrong airplane. So it's very, it's got a lot of very silly elements to it. But the women are a hundred percent for each other all the time. Yeah, and there's like great lines, uh, like he's a fireman for trees. I mean, <laughs> there are some marvelous uh, jokes there. I agree with you on William Powell. They wrote in something wonderful for Lauren McCall to play off of, uh, where she's trying to convince him she's cool with older men. <laughs> she said, "You know, like that fellow from the African Queen. I'm crazy <laughs> about him, or something like that." And it's perfect. Yes. I also and, love and the Betty name. Grable, Betty Grable, oh. too, uh, when she hears Harry James on the radio, she says, I love that guy. And of course, she was married to him. Yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I love the names of the characters. They're just yeah. like so silly. You can tell it was written in an era before computers and spell check because you have Shotzi, <laughs> you yes. have Pola yeah. and Loco. I Loco. mean, yeah, yeah. Very funny. And, I also love yeah. the scene where... Um, Marilyn Monroe sitting next to David Wayne on the airplane. You know, I mean, that part, it just makes no sense at all that she no. should happen to run into the guy that is the real owner of the apartment, whatever. Anyway, she's <laughs> next to the airplane and uh, he points out that she's, I guess she's reading her book upside down and, uh, yes. and she has to put her glasses on and he says, I think you're quite a strudel. <laughs> I love that so much. You're a strudel. Yes, it was perfect. Yeah, because she's so scared to put on her glasses. She doesn't think... Um, 
she'll get attention that old Dorothy Parker thing about men don't make passes at women who wear glasses kind of thing that runs through it but yeah they're very funny together it's interesting looking back because I think most people the big draw would be for acting wise you'd be like oh it's Lauren Bacall but she was actually not the top build that would have been Betty Grable who was top build and then I think Marilyn might have been second um, she became a huge star. And of course, that year was also the year of gentlemen prefer blondes. Um, they were both in the top 10 highest grossing. You mentioned cinema, Cinerama or Cinemascope. I think this was the second film that Fox made in Cinemascope after The Robe. And uh, this was the first one when they aired it on TV. Of course, it was pan and scan, but it was the first Cinemascope movie to play on network television. So yeah. yeah, it's a big one. A bad choice for Pan and Scan because they really took advantage of the yes. widescreen by having all six of them lined up. And so to scan across that is oh. just makes no sense. So if you if you are going to watch it, you do want to see it letterbox. But and Marilyn Monroe, of course, I'm a huge Marilyn Monroe. I'm a huge fan of yeah. I'm a huge Marilyn Monroe fan. I wrote a paper about her in film school. I love oh, Marilyn Monroe. I love that. And well, as a matter of fact, that was one of the reasons I quit film school, because uh, they said that she wasn't a, a, a worthwhile subject for serious oh, study. Yeah. What they, a know, horrible professor that was. Antonioni and, you know, yeah. yeah. So but I did write a paper about Marilyn Monroe. I love her. And I think she's just fabulously talented. And of course, there's never been anyone better suited for being in the movies just in terms of yes. the way she comes across on screen. You know, um, when Jean Renoir, uh, I'm sorry, when Pierre Renoir, the father of Jean Renoir was once asked why he painted the same model over and over. He said, her skin does not reject the light. And I always feel that that's, that's so that, beautiful. That applies to Marilyn Monroe. She just has this luminous quality that is so marvelous. And this is before she had troubles before she, you know, yeah. May not have been her greatest acting performance, but she's just so lovely in this. And I I, I just love seeing her at, at this young age where she's so talented and lovely. She makes it look so effortless. I think that's what part of the reason why people don't appreciate her. She's not one of those tortured actor types, but you know, she did take it seriously. We see photos and we've heard about the actor studio, and she was very yeah. studious, but I think she just made it look like it was nothing. And um, like that was her persona. But well, some of yeah. her earlier work, you know, I think they made a mistake of putting her in like Don't Bother to Knock and. Uh, oh, yeah. Ni- and Niagara. Niagara. Yep. Yeah. Where that was not the best way to show her off. This is really her at her best. This and uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes because she had a wonderful comic sensibility yeah. and knew how to use her assets very well. And and she was she was really great. And if you ever see the footage of Lauren Bacall presenting her with the Best Newcomer Award, you see that they had a wonderful rapport off screen oh, as well. Oh, that's so nice to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was glad to revisit it. I was telling Nell off air that this was the first time I'd watched all of these since the 90s. So it was really fun. But next up, we have another adaptation of a play. This time, Robert Harling's own script for his 1987 stage work, Steel Magnolias, which he was originally encouraged to craft in order to come to terms with his sister's death from diabetic complications following the birth of his nephew and his namesake two years earlier. 
What started as a story became a play over the course of 10 days, and his passion for this subject and his great affection for the fictional people he created in this dramatization shines through in the 1989 film from director Herbert Ross, starring a murderer's row of knockout actresses, including Sally Field, Olympia Dukakis, Shirley MacLaine, Dolly Parton, Daryl Hannah, and Julia Roberts. The film centers on a group of women who support and at times antagonize one another over the course of roughly two years or so in their small town Louisiana community, gathering frequently at the beauty salon owned and operated by Dolly Parton's character were there for their ups and downs in a film that's as teary as it is witty. I really enjoyed watching it again for the first time, as I said, in decades, probably since it was new on video. I remember McDonald's had this whole um, thing where they had videos that you could get for a couple bucks and we were collecting them all. So I know we had a uh, steel magnolias uh, back then. So I remember crying a lot as a kid watching this. And I think I cried buckets, of course, as an adult. So how about you? What are your thoughts on steel magnolias and absolutely fascinating uh, friendships? Well, and I want to mention, since you, you talked about Robert Harling, that he also wrote Soap Dish, which I think is a really neglected gem. Sally and Field. Yes, Sally Field again and Whoopi Goldberg. And oh my God. Yeah. Some great friendships in that, some some wonderful friendships. So aside from the fact that the last 15 minutes of it is now completely politically incorrect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, other than that, it's an extremely sharp and funny movie and very clever. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now back to Steel Magnolias. You're never going to see a better movie about female friendships than this one. These women drive no. each other crazy at times, especially the Shirley MacLaine character who says, I've just been in a bad mood for 40 years. I know. Uh -oh. She was my favorite. Uh, like for the whole <laughs> Olympia Dukakis thing where here, hit her. The thing at yeah. the funeral, I needed it because I was like hyperventilating at that point. Just great. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, you know, here is a group of women. Uh, of course, they're the, just the name of the movie is Steel Magnolias. They're, uh, they, they seem to be as fragile as flowers, but while the men around them are not really very competent at holding it together, they are the basis of that community. Uh, everybody always forgets Dolly Parton is married to Sam Shepard of all people. And I totally forgot he was in it until I was watching. I was like, oh my God, yeah. it's Sam, who's like Sam one of my Shepherd. favorites. Yeah. yeah, of course, he's wonderful. But in this movie, he is terrible. He is, no. he won't go anywhere with her. He's depressed. He's obviously severely clinically depressed. So he, she's supporting the family. Um, mm -hmm. Sally Field is definitely uh, keeping it together in their family, whether in the happy times of, uh, of Julia Roberts' wedding uh, or in the sad times. Uh, and uh, uh, Olympia Dukakis is a widow. Uh, and uh, Shirley MacLaine, I think she had a bad relationship. I don't know if they ever got married. Uh, Daryl Hannah had a bad relationship. So the men in this are really nothing. No, uh, they're not. Yeah. It's the women who really hold everything together and hold each other. And that one of my favorite lines of any movie ever is in this one where Dolly Parton as Truvy says, laughing through tears is my favorite emotion. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah that one gets you. I, I read something once uh, and said all of the best advice in life can come down to two words. Don't duck. 
And to me, you know, that's what this is saying is we embrace, we don't try to run away from our sad and scary feelings. We embrace them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I, you know, it is a sad, sad story. It is, yeah. It's very, very sad story. You, as you said, Robert Harling terribly mourning oh. the loss of his sister, who, like Julia Roberts in the movie, who was not a star when this movie came out. No, not at all. I think she'd only done Mystic Pizza. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, she says in the movie she would rather have a little bit of wonderful, yeah, like 20 minutes of wonderful yeah. and a lifetime of nothing special. And so even though her doctors have told her not to have children because it will be too much for her body with the diabetes, she's willing to, to do that. And, uh, and that is a choice and it's hard on everybody else, but um, they have to find their way through it. And I just think it's, a wonderful movie. I love the relate. I love every one of the characters yes. and I love relationships and the way they stand by each other, even when they drive each other crazy. Yeah. I think it might be Sally Field's best performance or it's up there at least. I it mean, is. it's hard. You've got Sally, you got Norma Ray right. and you've got, everything. Yeah. yeah, everything she does is so great. Yeah. Like her yeah. reactions in this movie, even when she doesn't have a line, like when uh, the pregnancy is announced and you just see her, and uh, you see how she's thinking about it or the toughness she tries to put on because her husband oh, is Tom Garrett, who's outside shooting guns. I mean, the men in this shooting guns, right. Yes. And right. And the scene that I will watch over and over is the one where they're in the uh, beauty salon and Julia Roberts has her diabetic problem. Oh, God, that's hard to and, see. Yeah. And Sally Field has to feed her a little orange juice and you can t- and she talks to her you can tell the way she's talked to her all her life now yes. this is going to be right it's just a little diabetic setback here but it's all yeah. right and yeah it's wonderful yeah Ugh, yeah it's a tough she, movie. she's she's so good in that she's so good yeah and i think it gets that right to the the feeling of julie roberts wanting to be independent and not wanting to have to depend on other people to help her out um like you know she initially doesn't want to take the orange juice and also she is just going through a seizure that's it's horrifying um so you can kind of see their whole dynamic play out of like this is somebody who i don't want to have to lean on but i lean on and i think they get that whole thing right for anyone who has like a caretaker or family relationship i know i do and so yeah it i think it gets the beats right you can tell this came from a real place for the screenwriter as we were mentioning it's also the era of so many just like heartbreakingly sad movies about female um, friendships or mothers and daughters like we had terms of endearment and then we had, uh-huh. we also had peaches, and you yeah, got like Delvin yeah. Louise coming up and it's just <laughs> yeah like women are going down basically yeah I want to get back to Thelma and Louise in a minute I wanted to bring it back in the context of set it off because yes. I think I think we have to talk about those two together but I do also want to mention Daryl Hannah who oh, is her. not I think given enough credit she's very good in this movie she's very very good and when she talks about how her personal problems will not impair her ability to do good hair you know yes. she's and, you know, and and we see her character change more than any other, really, over the course of the movie. Yeah. She goes from being somebody who's just had a devastating breakup mm-hmm. to somebody who 
is beginning to love again to somebody who is pregnant, you know, and, and I like the way that, that, that without going too hard on it, um, Harling reminds us that people die, people are born, things Mm -hmm. happen and it all happens at the same time. And we just have to deal with it. Yeah. Sometimes when it rains, it pours and Daryl Hannah's character. I think Daryl Hannah is one of those actresses, again, like a Marilyn, maybe because of their beauty, they do kind of get overlooked a little bit. Like I revisited Splash in the last uh, year or two. And you're like, geez, she brought so much to this movie. And I think uh, people just, oh, she's so beautiful. Or, um, you know, Daryl Hannah was doing the work. And this is another oh, she performance. She really, made, she really made that character so yeah. lovely in Splash. She's great. She's great in Kill Bill. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. She's amazing in Blade Runner. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. So I, I, I just wanted to make sure that we, that we gave her some credit. And I want to also mention Olympia Dukakis, of course, uh, also an Oscar yeah. winner. Uh, and I highly recommend the documentary about her called Olympia. Um, Ooh, I need to see that. She is great in this. Um, and she's somebody who's sort of going through some things. She um, buys a radio station. Yeah. He doesn't know what color commentary is. I'm too uh, colorful for words. I love that line. <laughs> yes. One of my favorites. Yeah. But uh, but she is great too. And Julia Roberts, as we said, in, in a very, very early performance, just the scene where she tells her fiance that she doesn't think she can marry him because oh, she can't have children. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that is, that is beautiful. Oh, and also blush and bashful my signature colors <laughs> i know yeah pink is my signature i know it's not pink it's blush and bashful which is so like something a bride would say and so that made me laugh very very hard yeah yes. yeah i love uh, that yeah and, I, and yeah. I love the wedding scene too where they've got the armadillo cake and they've got you know the dance yeah. it's yeah it's, it's just very fun very southern and very fun very fun for sure Well, lastly, we have a very different change of pace. Our first crime movie of the day, 1996, Set It Off, written by Kate Lanier and Takashi Buford and directed by F. Gary Gray. The film stars Jada Pinkett-Smith, Queen Latifah, Vivica A. Fox, and Kimberly Elise in her film debut, centered on four close friends in Los Angeles, California, who after a series of very hard blows decide to plan and execute a bank robbery in order to get out of their dead-end neighborhood and better their lives. Grossing over $41 million against its $9 million budget, set it off proved to Hollywood that not only would a female-led, but more importantly, a Black female-led film by a Black filmmaker could be a box office and critical sensation. And it was. Perhaps a bit more ambitious than it is successful overall regarding some of its predictable character and plot machinations, sort of like a few of the movies we've referenced, but it's still such a well-acted and executed work from the era that I was really glad to check out once again and yearn for the days when these things, original crime dramas, not remakes, were getting made and getting made with women. So Nell, tell me about Set It Off. You know, I want to start by talking about uh, one scene in Set It Off that I think is why it has to be on the list. And that is that when they do their first robbery, one of the four backs out at the last minute. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it's time to divide up the money. And 
you might think that the three people who actually did the robbery would divide the money three ways. Mm -hmm. But with a little bit of conversation about it, they are clear that they are a team. And even though one of them backed out, she definitely needs the money the most urgently of the four of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and she's and and Jada Pinkett uh, says, um, "You're my girl. We're we, yeah. we got we got you're you're in. That's the way it goes." And that shows you that this is really a movie about their friendship. And then later on, toward the end of the movie, uh, when a character sacrifices herself for the others, mm-hmm. um, we really see that they you know it's ride or die yes. it's ride or die for these for these characters now the movie is a little uneven in places i know some people don't like the kind of almost dream sequence where they reenact you know a scene from the godfather, oh, the godfather. that was weird yeah <laughs> weird, but i actually enjoyed that i thought again it showed something about the dynamic of these women yeah, and they were playful yeah once again and how they envisioned themselves, they were acting in you know in that way. Once again, the men in this movie are useless. I know Blair Underwood is so Blair Underwood even yeah is well he's a he's a cardboard character. I mean there's no oh, human behavior yeah. behave like that. Uh, I believe it's his first film as well, and yeah. his yeah. job is to be very handsome. His job is kind of like the female role in a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah, he's gorgeous, you know? supportive. He's gorgeous. He's rich. He is well educated. Yeah. And and somehow he's 100 percent supportive of uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, who is none of those things. And uh, I, you know, fine. Their relationship doesn't really make sense. Like, Don't think about it too hard. But yeah. yeah, (laughs) But that's okay because he's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, John McGinley's character is kind of. 1996, yeah, 1996, you've got a gay character who is 100% accepted by her friends. Yeah, Queen Latifah, right on. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was pretty progressive for that time. Yeah. Um, you also have a Black Lives Matter moment where a Black yep. man who is not holding a weapon, he's got got like a sandwich wrapped in aluminum foil in his hand and mm-hmm. is shot by the police. No consequences whatsoever to the cop. Yeah. Maybe, maybe he feels a little bad about it, but that's it. Yeah. Um, and so the movie's not afraid to really go there, uh, both in terms of setting up the reason that these women feel that they have no alternative within the context of what we might call legitimate society. The very beginning, Vivica A. Fox is fired because the bank got robbed. I know. It's she had nothing to do so with it. Maddening. Yes. Yeah. And then and then uh Jada Pinkett's um I'm still calling her Jada Pinkett because she wasn't married to Will Smith then. I know. Yeah. Pinkett, I, I didn't know what uh, to list her as. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um brother is killed by a cop. Yeah. Uh Kimberly Lisa's baby is taken away from her. And you know, they've got to they they have no the movie makes it absolutely clear that it's not this is not something where you can say, oh, go get a job. Oh, you know, yeah. go to school. What are, they they have no alternatives that are available to them. Mm-hmm. And the system has not treated them fairly. And there's almost a Robin Hood aspect where we are rooting for them. Yeah. Um, 
And then without giving too many spoilers away, it ends very badly for almost everybody. Mm-hmm. And that has that's why I was going to bring up Thelma and Louise, because really what the movie, what both movies were showing us is that there is no place in our society for women. Mm-hmm. There's no place for them to go. It's just yep. one dead after another. And it is literally better to be dead than to live the kind of life that is available to them. Yeah. I mean, these women try to play the game. You brought up um, the Vivica A. Fox character, which reminded me of a friend in, I think it was high school or college, I can't remember, worked in a bank and money went missing. And they just, they always, of course, suspect that it is an employee. And so they fired her, even though she didn't do it. And then a few months later, they realized it was a totally different employee. And they said, do you want to come back? And she's like, of course not. Like, never. Yeah. And so, um, you know, because she couldn't get a reference. So exactly what happens with the Vivica A. Fox character. These are people who do try to do everything right. Jada is trying to get her brother to go to college who she's looked after um, and would sacrifice and do just anything degrading things to herself for i wanted to bring that up too which is that's one of the that is one of we not only is there black lives matter element to it there's a me too matter where she is horribly exploited by a guy that she needs from to for money and that's portrayed in a very forthright matter-of-fact way yeah Oh man. Yeah. And she comes back and, you know, gives herself the shower and you're just dying for her. And then yeah. um, the, the inevitable conversation with her brother. Um, I think it's the society isn't respecting these women, like even the people that they're willing to do things for. Yeah, exactly. And when I went to, um, when I was doing film study, one of my favorite professors was gay and he, um, love to show different gay characters over the years and set it off was always a movie that he held in high esteem because he's like, she just happens to be gay. It's not like, um, Oh, she's the wacky gay best friend who goes shopping or something like that. Like uh, we don't even know it. Right. Like you kind of, you know, it right away, I guess I should say, but um, later how they like walk in and nobody does any jokes or goes yuck or anything like that. And so they treat it exactly like yeah. any other relationship she might yep. have. Yeah. She is not a stereotyped character at all. She's mm-hmm. not like looking overly butch or anything like that. No, her girlfriend is lovely. Yep. Is beautiful and, and seems to be very into her. And yeah, it just, you know, that may be in some ways the strongest relationship in the, <laughs> in the movie, basically. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, I, I, I thought, I, you know, there's a lot to it. And there's a reason that that movie resonated so much with people. So as long as we mentioned Thelma and Louise, that's another movie of a great female friendship and two very different women, mm-hmm. different in temperament, different in their life experience. Uh, but they are a hundred percent supportive of each other. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, um, they're on the same team. They have the, you know, it's like they have one mind. Yeah. When push comes to shove uh, in both cases. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, we mentioned, of course, that you did include 19 movies in your article, but only had time to dive into these three today. What other films, either from your list or just ones you admire that for whatever reason didn't make the cut? Because you mentioned um, that you had others that you wanted to add in too. Would you recommend to listeners that they should seek out, do you think? 
Well, book smart for sure. I yeah. absolutely love that. Um, as long as we mentioned Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Girls Trip, mm-hmm. uh, a good one. A movie that I have really enjoyed on Netflix is Someone Great. I um, see that. I keep hearing wonderful things. Yes. And that also, we talked about a great soundtrack. That's got a fantastic soundtrack. That's the movie that really got me into Lizzo. Okay. Uh, Gina Rodriguez plays a woman who's been in a relationship for nine years. They've just broken up partly because or primarily be the, you know, the precipitating factor uh, or the last straw is that she has accepted a job in California and he can't leave mm-hmm. New York. Um, but boy, those women are so there for each other. And uh, I, I just really, really, really like that movie. Um, let's see. Uh, Walking and Talking is a good one. Oh, yeah. Oh, she has an entire career of wonderful yes. uh, Nicole Hall of Center movies. Yeah, I mentioned for a good time call. That's a very unusual one where two girls who have the oh, same, yes. they have the same gay best friend, but they hate each other. Mm-hmm. Very different people. One of them is super straight and the other one is a phone sex uh, person. And um, they go on quite a journey together. And I really really enjoyed it. And Bend It Like Beckham is another one that everybody oh, should see. Yeah. Such a that's just film. a classic. I've seen that movie. I can't even count how many times. That's that's just a wonderful, wonderful movie. And again, it's a friendship that gets tested at times, but it remains very solid. I know. And so many of these also were made by women like Bennett, like Beckham, Gurinder Chadha, Someone Great was made by a woman. Just made by a woman. And yeah. yes. Book and, smart. Uh, yep books right exactly and uh for a good time call all made by women and yeah. um, that just that just makes a big difference although yep. we give props to f gary gray for set it off yes good job yeah <laughs> and herbert ross and, and herbert uh, ross negalesco yeah exactly yeah well this was so much fun now i really want to thank you for doing this it's always a pleasure to talk to you i love that you had a raggedy ann and andy i forgot to tell you that my first bedroom as a child, I had, well, I had the toys too, but I had a Raggedy Ann and Andy curtains uh, that were, yes, in my bedroom. So when you said that, I was like, yes, I did have conversations with them and it was so wonderful. Yeah. I Listen, I, my Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy are still uh, upstairs in my okay. house. And um, and I still remember what I said to them when I left for college and then about that I couldn't take them with me. So did you really, oh, that's sweet. That's like Andy's room in Toy Story and just chills. Yes. In fact, my review of the original Toy Story, I began by saying, before I tell you about this movie, I have to tell you that Raggedy and Raggedy Andy are about two feet away from me as I'm writing this. (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. Well, thank you now. This was such a treat. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for letting me talk about one of my favorite subjects. I really enjoyed it. Of course. You can come back anytime. All right. (laughs) Deal. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and Film Intuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.